ready? All right. Let's continue on. Chapter 8, we have the seven seals, which we know exactly what those are now. Those are descriptions of what it's like to live in the church age, these things being present realities among us. See God's uh, judgment coming. We see God's people on earth making it through the great tribulation, ready to get there. Then in chapter 8, verse 6, we've introduced ourselves to seven angels holding seven trumpets. And the next few chapters, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, are going to, to describe these, uh, these seven trumpets with another little intermission in there. That's going to be chapter 10. So these are a lot easier. We're not going to spend as much time. These are pretty simple. The trumpets are echoes of the plagues of Egypt. Now, why do you think... God would use the plagues of Egypt, remember the, the things that happened to uh, the Egyptians that in order to let him let go of God's people so that they could go back to their homeland. Why do you think God would use those plagues to describe the plagues of Revelation? Any thought on that? Yeah, yeah, they, they would not only understand because they knew the Old Testament, but those plagues are accomplishing the same thing. The plagues of Exodus serve to get God's people to their homeland. And the, the, the plagues of living in the church age, where we live now, all the, the plagues and all the horrific things that happen in our day are serving to cause God's people to get to their homeland. Not Canaan, but New Canaan, the... the uh, New Jerusalem, heaven. That's, that's our ultimate end. And so the first trumpet is hail in verse 7. The second trumpet is blood in verse 8. The third trumpet is poison water, verse 10. The fourth trumpet is darkness, verse 12. The fifth trumpet is demon locusts in chapter 9, verse 1. Those are, that's a fun passage to read. And then chapter 6 is kind of odd because it introduces us back to the four horsemen from chapter 6. These four guys are actually fo focused right there as well. And so this is kind of showing us this Exodus plagues are supposed to paint a picture. Okay, so what is it like to live in the church age? Well, we're going to go through this stuff and from the perspective of the unbeliever, they are going to go through this stuff. They're the unbelieving nations in the church age are going to be like the Egyptians. They're going to have all of these things, all of these hail, blood, poison, water, and, and those aren't going to be specific um, like they were in Egypt, but they're going to be economic and environmental and all sorts of different plagues that are just going to be a part of the average life in the church age. And then uh, before we get to the judgment day again, we're going to get to this seventh trumpet. There is another intermission, a break in the action. And chapter 10 is really interesting. Chapter 10 is one of those that's really, really hard to, uh, to interpret as well. So I'll do my best to do that in a short time period. Uh, chapter 10 begins with John being told to eat a scroll. And if you know your Old Testament, that won't sound weird because he's told Ezekiel to eat a scroll before. He told Jeremiah to eat a scroll before. And that's what prophets do. Prophets internalize a message so that they can then throw it up or give it to God's people. That's what eating the scroll is, internalizing God's message, then giving it to God's people. And so what he's told to do next 
is John is going to eat a scroll, and it's probably, if I had to guess, it's this scroll. I mean, maybe a different scroll, but my guess is the scroll that John saw in chapter 4 and 5 is the same scroll he was told to eat in chapter 10. And what we see when he eats it is the contents of that scroll, uh, kind of more of the contents of that scroll. Remember, these are the seals. Now we can see what the purpose of that scroll is, what's inside that scroll. John's going to eat it, and John's going to tell us. And the first thing he tells us is very strange. He tells us he's given a rod, and he is told to measure the temple. Remember, we're talking about the heavenly temple now, the version of the temple that is in God's throne room. And John measures it. What does that mean? Well, again, the Old Testament is going to tell us what that means. Ezekiel 40, the same thing happens. Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel is giving a measuring rod and told to measure the temple. And he does so, Ezekiel 40 tells us that that is a symbol of the protection of God's people. He's measuring it, not to get the, the length by width by height. He's measuring it to show God's people that this area will be protected by God. That in the coming wrath, God's people will be protected. And so the first century Christian who knows Ezekiel 40 is going to say, Ah, oh, he's measuring the temple because Ezekiel measured the temple. This is God saying that his people are going to be protected in the coming judgments. That in the midst of living in the Exodus plague world... God's people will be protected in the midst of it. Just like this was saying, who can stand, who can, who can be protected against this coming wrath? Oh, God's people can be protected. This is saying, who will be protected in, in this kind of world? Oh, God's people will be protected. His, those who uh, dwell in the temple, in a sense. But what's interesting also is that he tells him not to measure the court of the Gentiles. So if you know your, the picture of your, your temple, you've got the inner court where the priest could go to, that's the holy place, or the most holy place. Then you've got the holy place right outside of that that the priests could go to. And then outside of that, you had the court of the uh, men that the Jewish men could go to. And then outside of that, you had court of the women. But then outside of that, court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could go into that area, but they couldn't go any further. And so he says not to measure that. And we believe, or I believe that picture is that even though God's people will be protected, they will be vulnerable to suffering and persecution from unbelievers. That it's a protection in the midst of this, but it's not a complete protection. We're still going to suffer. We're still going to endure persecution in the midst of this. But we're ultimately protected. The, the gospel will never be stamped out. The gospel message will never be stopped. The church will thrive. The church will advance in this age. In that sense, we're protected. But he says, don't measure the court of the Gentiles because we're still going to be vulnerable and open to attack and to suffering. And he says, to do that, we are protected uh, for a limited time. And then he gives the time of 42 months. So let's stop for a second and talk about numbers. Again, numbers in Revelation are tricky because if you're a particular viewpoint, you believe they're specific numbers. Uh, if you're not, you believe they're symbolic numbers. And my studies led me to believe that more often than not, numbers in Revelation have symbolic theological meanings rather than quantitative meanings. And so here's one of the numbers that we see occurring over and over again. We see the number 42 months. We see the number 1,260 days. Uh, we see three and a half years. And then we see time, times, and 
half a times. <laughs> All right, so that's a year, two years, plus half a year, which is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. 42 months is three and a half years. These numbers here, three and a half years, are all symbolic numbers. Now, we, the key for us is what do those numbers mean? And that's where they go all over the board as to what this are. This is where the futurist is going to get their seven-year tribulation because of Daniel. Daniel is going to help us interpret this, in my opinion. And they rightly look to Daniel to get the interpretation. But I think the futurist misinterprets this. They see this as a future seven-year period where in the middle of that time, there's, all these things are going to happen. I, I, I look this very simply. In Daniel 12, Daniel sees a time of future suffering for God's people. And he calls it, uh, what does he use? I think he uses this term, 1260 days. And he uses that term later on as well. But Daniel sees a future suffering coming for God's people. And Revelation takes that from Daniel, Daniel 12, and gives these numbers to that era of suffering. So what I believe is going on here is all of those numbers, again, point to simply this, the church age. That 42 months is not 42 months. 42 months is Daniel's future time of suffering for God's people. 1260 days is not 1200. It's all theological meanings that point to a future time of suffering where God's people will be protected, but God's people will suffer. That Daniel would prophesy about in the 6th century B.C. or 7th century B.C. Okay? So again, could be wrong here. Not holding that tightly, but the numbers make sense when you look at Daniel chapter 12 that he is talking about the church age. And so anytime you see these numbers in Revelation, I think this is John's way of talking about the era of the church age. Okay? All right, so that would make sense if he is told, if, if John is told to, as John is told, to measure the temple, but we will be vulnerable for 42 months. So we will be protected, but at the same time, we'll be vulnerable for a period of 42 months. Translation, we will be protected during the time of the church age, and meaning our message will continue. We will go forth proclaiming the gospel, but it will be limited to a time that we are in the church age. So 42 months really is at least 2,000 years. It could be longer. Three and a half years, it's really 2,000 at least years. And so this is where, you know, uh, I, I, with my church, I, I had to stop and say, okay, now a lot of you want to throw your Bible at me right now because you've been told as a young person that the, that the, the Bible is literal and it's God's Word and you believe it to be true and how dare you try to symbolize all these things. And I just want to remind you, the Bible is literal. The Bible is God's Word. But the Bible uses figurative language to convey literal truths. And I think this is what he's saying. This is not manipulating God's Word. This is simply the Bible using figurative language to convey a, a, a truth. And the truth being that God's people during the church age, the end times, will experience persecution while we are at the same time protected. Okay, any questions? Mm-hmm. 
Somebody asked me that earlier. Uh, one of you guys did. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I would hope so because that was their Bible, and they had pastors that were to teach their Bible, and that was all they held on to. Um, so my thought would be that, but we don't have any record of that because they didn't keep history. Uh, you know, they didn't keep records of that. Um, so that that's the big question. We don't really know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, for the preterists, they're going to look at those numbers differently. They're going to look at them as literal years. Uh, they're going to see, you know, this, these years leading up to the fall of the temple. So they're going to see a time of protection not being church age, but they're going to see the protection being, okay, you know, Paul's going to leave Rome before he's killed. Actually, he's killed then, but... You know, they're they're gonna they're gonna be protected in the midst of this intense persecution by Rome. So yeah, there's there's a little bit of change there. Yeah, because it's going to be used again in Revelation 21 of the temple being the picture of God's presence among His people and that those who are in the temple are have God with them. Those who are protected, those who are, I guess it's good that I drew a square there, those who are there in the temple are being protected by, the, by God's presence. So God's presence with us on, in the church age is a picture of us in the temple and being protected by him and in his presence at the same time. Is that? Yeah, that makes sense yeah. in line if you do the Exodus again. Okay, anything else? All right, so next what happens is not only do we get this confusing time or this confusing number thing, uh, but after this measuring of the temple, then we see two witnesses. Now, it's these two witnesses that are more cause of, of dispute and discretion. A lot of people think they're two different things, and I'll give you my interpretation. Um, we're introduced to two witnesses, and their job is to prophesy during this time period, during this 42 months. So, again, if you're looking at it as a literal, you're going to think of two historic figures that during the time of three and a half years, they're going to prophesy. They're going to speak on behalf of God. And uh, the text says that, that a lot of different things are happening to them. So if you're a futurist, you're looking for two prophets that will prophesy for 42 months during the last days, during the, the time just before Christ returns. Here's what I think these two witnesses are. I think they are much like these guys here and these guys here, that the two witnesses are symbolic of the church. Now, here's why I think they are the church. Look at the text, and if you just walk through, we'll do it quickly. Compare what happens to them and compare what happens to the church. So in verse 4, they are called olive trees and lampstands. Well, there's a good clue right there. Anytime a lampstand, what is a, Jesus already told us what a lampstand was. They're the church. And so I think the, 
the two witnesses called lampstands are the church uh, there in, in chapter 10. And then in verse uh, 4, they're called olive trees. There's fruit indications of Jesus there. Uh, verse 5, we see the power of the Holy Spirit in them to withstand the enemy, just like the church has the power of the Holy Spirit in it to withstand the enemy. Verse 6, we see miracles accompanying their message, uh, just as the New Testament church used miracles to accompany its message. Verse 7 and 8, enemies attack and kill them, just like enemies attack and kill the church. Verse 9 and 10, they're mocked and ridiculed, just like the church is. Verse 11, they're resurrected, just like the church will be at Jesus' second coming. And then verse 12, they are called home to heaven, just as the church will at the end of the age. So they could be two specific people, literal people, who walk the earth and all these bad things happen to them. Or this could be more symbolic image of these two people representing the church and their mission on earth. And I think that fits in line with what's going on here because this, remember this, this gap is, is asking the question, how are God's, you know, what, what is the contents of the scroll? Remember, he ate this scroll, so what is he seeing? Well, he's seeing that God's people are protected, that's the measuring, and he's seeing our mission. He's seeing the mission of the church. Part of God's plan here is to advance the gospel in this world. And that's part of this contents of the scroll, that God is using His church to redeem His people. Okay, anything there? Question, comment? Yep. Yes, there is. And uh, um, there, there, there are three or four reasons that are put forth, and I don't have any of them in my notes right now, but uh, there are commentators who will give three or four reasons that the two has, has symbolic nature. It, some, I think one of them was Old Testament Israel, New Testament church being together. That was one. And there's some others I just don't know off the top of my head, but there is some, some symbolicness of there being two. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so the scroll reveals the church's mission, that we are to give our lives for the gospel and call the nations to repentance. And what did the two witnesses do? They gave their lives for the gospel and they called the nations to repentance. So my interpretation of these two witnesses in chapter 10 is that they are the church. All right, so the intermission ends with the nations once again failing to repent. Uh, they are called to repentance as they were here in the day of the Lord. They do not repent. They instead just ask the question, who can stand against this? Once again here, they're given the opportunity to repent by these two witnesses. And once again, the nations fail to repent. And then the seventh trumpet is blown here in chapter 11, 15 through 19. And the seventh trumpet is God's final judgment being poured out. And there's a reason, 8, 1, 5, and 11... 15 through 19 sound like very similar events because they are. They're both describing the exact same event. And that takes us to uh, kind of an intermission between, between the trumpets and the bowls. It doesn't immediately go from seventh trumpet to seventh bowl. John sees more of the contents in this, these seven signs here. So chapters 12 through 15 is going to be seven signs or seven symbols. That's what that Greek word means. Uh, John is going to say in seven different places over the next chapter, then I saw. Uh, he saw a sign. He saw a symbol. 
And what he's going to see is kind of the, the retelling of the mission of the church. So the first sign in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, he sees a woman, a child, and a dragon. So again, we ask the question, what do these represent? The woman represents God's people. The Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, all together being God's people. We know this because of the way she's used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. Now that, that's how Israel was described in the Old Testament, as a woman. Uh, the sun and moon and, star, and 12 stars that you see in the text is from Genesis 37. Uh, it describes the 12 tribes of Israel. Also, there's Song of Solomon 6, Isaiah 60, other Old Testament texts that are used in this passage to describe God's people. So this woman gives birth to a child. Well, who is the child? Well, the child is Jesus. Uh, that's easy. This, this child came from Israel just as a child comes from a woman. Jesus came from Israel. And she gives birth to the child, and the child is taken up into heaven. And what does she do? She flees into the wilderness for a period of 1260 days. So that gives more credence to the belief that 1260 days is the church age. So this woman, Israel, gives birth to a child. The child is Jesus who ascends to the Father. She flees into the wilderness, the picture of the church dispersing to the nations, for the period of the church age. And so she is on mission now in the world, taking the gospel to the nations. Um, we know this child is Jesus also because um, Psalm 2 is an echo of the way this child is described. It says, but her, verse 5, it says, But her child was caught up to God and to His throne, which is Jesus ascending into heaven. He's described with uh, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. That's straight out of Psalm 2, 7 through 9. The dragon, dragon's the easiest one to determine who that is. The dragon is Satan because the text says so in verse 9. <laughs> the dragon is Satan. Uh, John then sees a battle waged between angels led by Michael and Satan. He sees Satan falling. Angels and demons are defeated. Uh, the dragon then turns his attention to the woman, which is a picture of Satan attacking the church. Verse 13 through 16, but it backfires and that the gospel actually spreads all the more. So that's the first sign he sees. Then in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, he sees the second sign, the first beast. What is the beast? These verses describe a beast that obviously represents something. In the first century church, they would have probably identified the beast as the Roman Empire uh, because this beast is doing the same things that the Roman Empire was doing. Uh, some are going to associate this. If you're a premillennial dispensationalist, you're going to see the beast as the Antichrist. Again, Antichrist is not going to be mentioned anywhere, but there are similarities between this beast and the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians. So a lot of people will believe that to be the, the case here. Others will see this beast as a particular government or a world leader. So which is it? Well, I think it's all three. I think the beast is the evil system that is behind all institutional wickedness in the world during the church age, that sets itself up against God and His people. Uh, so Sam Storms will describe it like this. Here's the quote in your notes. The beast then is a transcultural, 
transtemporal, meaning spanning all eras, all cultures, all times, symbol for all individual and collective, satanically inspired opposition to Jesus and his, temp- and his people. It is anything and everything, whether a principal power or person, utilized by the enemy to deceive and destroy the influence and advance of the kingdom of God. Thus the beast is, at one time, the Roman Empire. At another, the Arian heresy in the 4th century. The beast is, at one time, the Emperor Decius in 3rd century persecutor of the church. At another time, secular evolutionary Darwinism in the 21st century. The beast is a late medieval Roman Catholic papacy, modern Protestant liberalism, Marxism, the radical feminist movement, the Pelagian heresy of the 5th century, communism, Joseph Stalin, the 17th century Enlightenment, 18th century Deism, Roe v. Wade, the state persecution of Christians in China, the publicity of the book The Myth of God Incarnate in the mid-70s, radical Islamic fundamentalism, angry 21st century atheism, etc., etc. Each of these individually and on its own is the beast. All of these are collectively and in unity the beast. And so, the, the one who believes this is the Antichrist, you, this person would be right. If there is a man of lawlessness at the end of the church age who rises himself up and deceives God's people and deceives the world, then he would be not the beast in and of itself. He would be a part of this beast, this system that is within the church age. So he could be the Antichrist. But I wouldn't limit it just to one person at the end of this age. I would say he is a part of this overall beastly system. That if you took all the bad world leaders uh, and, and governments and institutions and ideas and, and, the, and the Antichrist, if there is that figure, and you, you line them up against a wall and you, if you shine a light on them, then the reflection that they would all cast, the shadow that they would all cast would be the beast. But you would see the beast behind all of them. That's what this first beast is. Worldly, political, and economic systems that Satan uses to wage his war on Christians. Yep. I did while you were gone. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll summarize it for you. All of Christian, all of humanity in Revelation is painted with either the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb. Seal of the beast, seal of the lamb. Uh, do not believe those are barcodes or chips in your skin. They are spiritual markings of who you are owned by. That if you are, on, you are in Christ, you are sealed by the Lamb. If you are not in Christ, you, are, you have the mark of the beast on you. And it's not something you'll see in a mirror, not something you'll see in a, a PET scan or anything like that. Uh, the mark of the beast is a spiritual marker of whose kingdom you follow. Yeah, if you're a baker who, who uh, doesn't go along with the, the culture around you, there's going to be a price to pay. You, there will be economic loss for Christians in, in the church age. Yep. I almost wrote an ERL, ERLC article on that very thing. <laughs> I might. Uh, third sign, the second beast. So we've got the first beast. By the way, we are forming an unholy trinity. 
Uh, Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit kingdom. And in doing so, he's going to set up a counterfeit trinity, just as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one trinity, is a trinity, one God and three persons. Uh, he will set up a false kingdom with the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon that we will see uh, coming up. The third sign is the second beast. The second beast in chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, is going to look like a lamb, but it's going to speak like a lion, which is the opposite of Jesus, is not. Uh, it's the lamb, Jesus who speaks like a lion, but looks like a lamb. This second beast is going to do the opposite, meaning it's going to be deceptive. It's going to look gentle, but it's going to be very deceptive in nature. Uh, it's going to deceive people with signs and wonders to lure them into the trap. And the specific trap it's luring them into is the first beast. The second beast is a gravitational beam. It's, a, it's an attractive exterior of the first beast. Its purpose is to draw people into the trap of the first beast. Uh, later on, this is going to be called the false prophet. Some people, again, believe this to be a single person. Uh, but I'm going to see this again not, a, not as a single prophet or a single person, but as a system that exists in the church age, not a person that exists at the end of the church age. So it's going to be a systematic weapon, but this one's going to be a religious flair to it. Uh, I'm, going to see, I'm going to see the second beast as false teachers and false prophets and false teachings that lead people astray in church age, whether it be false religions or false versions of Christianity. Uh, it's going to be very religious. It's going to look attractive. It's going to look very loving and look very godly to some, but it serves to draw people not towards God, but away from God. This is where we get to the number 666. The mark of this beast is 666. I could spend a lot of time here as to what people think 666 is. I'm going to go again with, with the, another number in Revelation being a symbolic number. And this is symbolic of the unholy trinity, 666. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Seven is God's number. Perfection, complete wholeness. Six is the number of incompleteness. Not perfect, not holy, fake. False. It's close to the real thing, but it is not the real thing. Six falls short of the perfection of seven. So if you get a license plate tag that says 666 on it, don't freak out. It's not a number that we have to avoid at all costs. And if you get a receipt that says 666, oh, burn it, I don't want it. That's, that's not, God's people shouldn't be afraid of that number. This number is a way of symbolizing this unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Fourth sign, the Lamb and the 144,000. So we know who they are already, the 144,000. That's God's people on earth living in the church age. They are described, this is going to support my theory that they are who they are. They're described in verse 1, they're described on Mount Zion, meaning the, the city where God's people dwell. They're described with the Lamb, with Jesus. They're described marked by the Lamb and the Father. So there's the seal of the Lamb corresponding to the mark of the beast. Verse 2, they're singing a song that no one else knows. They're singing a victory song. Verse 4, they're undefiled, faithful to Jesus alone, like, like us. Verse 4, they follow Jesus where He leads. 
Verse 4, they have been redeemed as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And verse 5 says they are found to be completely blameless and sinless. So again, we are seeing a picture of 144,000, which is a symbolic number representing God's people on earth during the church age. Fifth sign, 14, 16 through 13, 6 through 13, is three angels bring a message. The first angel brings a message that... Uh, of, of warning, uh, fear God and give Him glory. Verse 7, because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The second angel come, tells of the consequences of ignoring that warning. And he starts saying, Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. And this is going to introduce us to Babylon, another theme in Revelation. Babylon in Revelation is Satan's kingdom. It's not one particular kingdom in any age. It is Satan's kingdom who uses earthly kingdoms. But behind all wicked earthly kingdoms is the satanic kingdom of Babylon. Babylon, we know in the Old Testament, was a wicked kingdom that oppressed God's people. So that's why God uses Babylon as the name of, the, of Satan's kingdom in the New Testament era. Then in the third, third angel comes and tells the consequences of those of, of, of being in Babylon, or the consequences of those uh, being living in fallen Babylon. That those who dwell in Babylon, uh, that we see horrific images of hell here in this passage, uh, God's wrath being poured out forever. And then the sixth sign is the harvest of the earth. There's, there's this is the picture of what Judgment Day is going to look like. Two simultaneous events. There's a, a wheat harvest in verse 15 and 16 and a grape harvest in verse 17 through 20. The wheat harvest is the ingathering of God's people. It's a, it's a harvest of, of redemption. And then the grape harvest in verse 17 through 20 is, the gather, is a judgment of the wicked. It's a harvest of judgment. So that's at the end of the age. This is the picture that when this happens... It's going to be two harvests. God's people and those who are not God's people will all be harvested, in a sense, and gathered unto God. Seventh sign is the seven angels with seven plagues. So the seventh sign, so we're right here. We're in between trumpets and bowls. We're in these 12 through 15. The last of these seven sign is going to introduce us to these seven bowls. So... The um, let's see, seventh vision sets up the seventh bowl, which is the third of the divine judgments. God's people are seen singing a song of celebration for their victory over the dragon. Uh, they, the, out of the tabernacle come seven angels with seven, uh, seven bowls, the seven plagues that are going to be poured out on mankind. So the purpose of these seven visions is to show us what was in the scroll that John ate. So these signs represent the scroll that John ate back in chapter 10. That's the message that John had internalized and he prophesied through this letter. So every living person has a choice to resist Babylon and follow the Lamb. That's the big idea of these seven signs that we have before us. Two choices. Resist Babylon and follow the Lamb or follow Babylon and resist the Lamb. All right, so now we get to the seven bowls. And these are going to be pretty, pretty easy to follow as well here in chapter 16. They are going to once again echo the Exodus plagues. They're going to be very, very similar to these. They're almost going to correspond exactly. The only difference between the trumpets and the bowls is that the bowls seem to be a lot worse. 
they're going to intensify in nature. So the first bowl is sores and disease. There's physical judgments that come upon mankind in the church age. The second and third bowl is blood. Uh, the fourth bowl is fire. The fifth bowl is darkness. The sixth bowl is real interesting, this one right here. Uh, this is where we're introduced to demonic activity, which is used symbolically as frogs, uh, just as the um, Exodus plague of the frogs. This is the demonic activity that's going to escalate and continue in the, in the church age. If you're a Christian and you don't believe in demons, uh, you should. You should read your Bible and realize um, demons are real. Spiritual warfare is very real. And it's not something we need to be totally engrossed in, but it is not to be ignored either. Uh, we need to understand that spiritual reality, spiritual uh, warfare is a reality among us. And it's here in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, that we're introduced to the idea of Armageddon. Uh, so what is Armageddon? Uh, well, Armageddon, the closest Hebrew word to it is Megiddo, which is a plain in northern Israel. And it's a spot where... Um, if you look at Israel on a map, I don't have any space to do this. If you look at Israel on a map, it's a narrow strait of land. And just to the north of Jerusalem is Megiddo, where uh, the prophets of Baal had their showdown against Elijah. And it's there where it would say it's a natural funnel for invading armies and for Israel to defend itself. So throughout history and throughout the Old Testament, Megiddo was just known as a place of battle. Uh, if I said Waterloo, y'all, you would know what I was talking about. You would, it's Napoleon's you know, final defeat. And so if I said, well, you know, that's America's Waterloo right there, I wouldn't literally mean that America fought in Waterloo. We weren't around then. We were, but we didn't fight in that battle. Um, but I would refer to a, a, a place of battle. Uh, similarly here, I don't believe Armageddon is referring to a, an, a, an exact battle that's going to happen in this land. I think it's God's way of conveying that there is going to be a final battle, God versus His enemies, and it's going to take place, um, not in Megiddo, but it's going to take place like uh, all those battles in Megiddo did. Um, literally, if you looked at Armageddon literally, if you're a futurist, you're going to say that all the remaining nations after the seven-year judgment are going to gather together in this great final battle right there on the plains of Megiddo. But if you look at it as a symbolic nature like I do, then it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. A metaphor like Waterloo. We would call it something like that. That God is going to finally put an end to all the injustice against His enemies. All right, then seventh. Here we have the seventh bowl, which is the final judgment. And we see this picture of all these different cataclysmic images of the destruction of the world. Chapter 17 and 18, we see a picture of the fall of Babylon. Uh, you see the woman and the beast. Uh, Babylon is called the great prostitute and harlot because of her alluring and seductive nature. Uh, and even if you're a first century Christian or a 21st century Christian, uh, this worldly kingdom that we live in, Babylon, draws many away from God. He uses things that we like, sex and money and power and influence and wealth, all these things to draw people into its midst. This woman is the great prostitute who, who is on top of this beast. So the picture is that on 
You know, in verse 3, the woman is sitting on this scarlet beast. She represents worldly seduction of Satan's kingdom. She's very attractive. Even John in the text marvels at her, and the angel kind of gets on to John for marveling at her. Uh, a picture of deception and, and temptation. Um, what looks attractive may be deadly. John is warned not to marvel at her. Then he describes seven heads on the beast as or on this beast has seven heads, and beast as seven mountains. Uh, the Old Testament, again, tells us what a mountain represents. Some people think, well, it's, it must be Rome, right? Because Rome is the city built on seven hills. Well, it could be that. I think it has an Old Testament meaning. And in the Old Testament, mountains symbolize kingdoms. And seven being not seven specific kingdoms, but seven representing all. And so it's saying all kingdoms, not seven specific kingdoms, but all kingdoms and their rulers, those are the crowns, that have been deceived by Satan to do his will. Uh, this is why I think it's really dangerous for a Christian to put their hope in government. Uh, Revelation does not paint governments in a good light. Uh, I love our government. We have the best government on earth. There's a lot of problems with it, but if I had one to choose to live in, it would be this one. But Revelation seems to paint maybe not all governments, but government in general to do the work of Satan. Uh, ten horns, kings that have not come yet. Uh, best guess here is they probably represent wicked kings and rulers that will be used by Satan at the end of the church age. Uh, then the beast eats the woman. <laughs> That's the, kind of the, the turning point of these two chapters. All of a sudden the beast turns around and eats the woman who had, who had uh, seduced all these people into his kingdom. And the simple explanation there is that that's the nature of the beast. That's where that term comes from. Uh, it's in his nature. Uh, Satan's kingdom is a naturally self-destructive kingdom. It can't help itself. It kills, it steals, it destroys. That's just what it does. Even the, the prostitute who helped its kingdom, who benefited his kingdom, he turns on her. In chapter 18, simply a song of Babylon. You have... Three different songs going on. In verses 1 through 8, you have voices of angels speaking from heaven that Babylon is demonic, Babylon is sinful, Babylon is prideful. Verse 9 through 20, there's three songs of lament from those who have been in Babylon and they're lamenting over the fall of Babylon. They put their trust in Babylon and it made them rich and powerful, but now their kingdom is crumbling. And then verses 21 through 24 is another song from an angel. And the angel calls, calls God's people to rejoice over the fall of Babylon, which is what happens in chapter 19, this final battle that is set up. John sees God's people celebrating the fall of Babylon. Verse 7 begins the image of a wedding feast that, that God is entering into an eternal covenant with His people. And then verse 11 is this final battle and this is with the scene where Jesus shows up on a white horse ready to make war. The armies of heaven are pictured with Him, um, gathered around Him like an army invading. And it's kind of anticlimactic because the, the text ends with Jesus simply speaking a word and the battle's over. <laughs> it's like the most anti... It's not nothing like at a Braveheart or anything. It's nothing like a really good war movie. You think final battle, it's going to be a, an epic one. No, it ends very quickly. Jesus just speaks and boom, everybody's dead. And everybody gathered around him, you know, the people ready to fight next to him. They're like, oh, I guess we won. Okay, we don't have to fight. Jesus destroys his enemies. Verse 17 is another feast. 
Just like there was a feast at the beginning of the chapter, there's another feast here, but this time it's the feast of the vultures who are eating God's enemies. <laughs> they are, uh, you're either going to feast with Jesus or be feasted on by vultures in that day. That's right. The beast and the false prophet and his kings are thrown into the lake of fire. So this, this chapter ends with two out of the three of the unholy trinity being destroyed and taken care of. So, but we've still got, so the beast and the false prophet are taken care of in chapter 20. Verse 20 focuses on the destruction of the final uh, of the unholy trinity, the dragon, Satan. And this takes us to the millennium. Chapter 20, most debated, uh, difficult chapter in all, of, in all of the scriptures. Chapter 20 is the millennial reign of Christ. There are three things that are going on in this chapter. I'm going to fly through this. Verses 1 through 6, there's a thousand-year reign of Christ called the millennium. Verse 7 through 10 is a battle at the end of the age where God's people are greatly outnumbered, but God's enemies are defeated. And he uses the picture of Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are straight out of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog was, a, uh, was the representative of God's enemies during that battle. And God's people in Ezekiel 38 and 39 were greatly outnumbered, but they won the war. And this is the same picture that he's painting here. At the end of the church age, there will be a final battle. It's probably going to be spiritual. I don't think we're talking about guns and ammo here. Uh, it's probably going to be a spiritual battle where God's people are greatly outnumbered. And God's people, though, are victorious because of the Lamb. Then verses 11 through 15, final judgment where all humanity is judged by God. Three questions about the millennium. When does the millennium occur? Well, it depends on how you read Revelation. If you read Revelation chronologically, like this happens, then this, then after this comes this, then after this comes this, and the, if it's chronological, then you're going to necessarily, you're going to see the millennium as happening after the second coming of Christ. So the millennium is going to happen sometime in the future because Jesus came back in chapter 19, then chapter 20, the millennium. So if you're a chronological futurist, you're going to read it like that. If you read Revelation in cycles like I do, then if, you're, then if John is seeing a series of visions from differing perspectives, then you're going to see it a certain way as well. And so this is the kind of the way you see it uh, in different perspectives. Um, if Revelation is a series of cycles, then the millennium does not necessarily have to come after the second coming of Christ. It could just be another camera angle at events that have already been described in multiple ways. The, the millennium could be another picture of what we've already seen going on here. It's like watching a football game on ESPN when they have them 14 different camera versions, camera angles from all these different perspectives. All right, so this is one camera angle. This is another camera angle. This is another camera angle. Well, could it be that the millennium is another camera angle as to what is going on in the church age? That's one way to look at it. Uh, how you read Revelation will lead you toward a certain interpretation of the millennium, which are generally three interpretations that have been historically held through church history. The first is pre-millennialism. That is, Jesus will come pre-millennium. Jesus comes before the millennium, and then He ushers in a thousand-year, literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Again, there are two, historic versus dispensational. You can go here. I'm not going to parse those out. I'm going to lump them all together just for the sake of time. Uh, i got a list of people who hold to this position, and I want to show you good godly men who hold to that. 
uh, Irenaeus and Polycarp, who we've already talked about in the first century, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, Tertullian, all first century people who held the premillennialism, John Wesley, John MacArthur, John Piper, a lot of Johns, uh, Wayne Grudem, Danny Aiken, Al Mohler, Paige Patterson, those are all our uh, seminary presidents uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention, my denomination. Charles Swindoll, Russell Moore, uh, David Jeremiah, uh, name we heard before, Randy Alcorn, Billy Graham, I think you've heard of him probably, D.A. Carson, W.A. Criswell, um, really good godly men who, who hold the pre-millennial. And uh, that, again, that's the most popular opinion today. Post-millennialism. Post-millennium says Jesus will return after the millennium. That, that the gospel will be advanced in the world and will go and grow and grow and grow and impact more and more people to the point where the millennium will just be a natural overflow of the gospel taking over the world. It's a very positive, it's a glass half full way of looking at the scriptures. Uh, this primarily came out of the Enlightenment in the 1800s because you look around the world, things are getting better. We've got science, we've got technology, we've got medicine, people's lifespan are growing. So obviously you've got uh, colonial expansion of England who saw their, you know, their greatness being going forward, taking the gospel, uh, so they thought. Uh, but then in the 20th century, two things happened that kind of put a damper on the post-millennium thought. They might want to take a guess what those two things were. Yeah, yeah, World War One, World War Two, kind of put out the fire of the post millennials. Uh, yeah, because they all all of the positive aspect of the of the the Enlightenment was kind of just snuffed out in that moment because the horrific nature of those two wars showed us that we have not gone very far as as humanity. <laughs> we are not nearly as progressed as we thought we were, and so post millennialism is held was held by guys like Jonathan Edwards. Uh, who's you know genius, brilliant guy in the uh, first Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s, 1600s, 17s, 1800s. 1800s. I always get those confused. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Wesley was another postmillennial. Uh, again, they're guys living in the Enlightenment era. Charles Hodge, G. W. Truett, B. B. Warfield, Doug Wilson, probably the only modern day postmillennialist left. <laughs> Not many of them left. Uh, Though he does a good job of, uh, of defending his position well, but he doesn't sell me on it. Uh, and then the third position uh, is the amillennial position, which is not a very good name for it. Uh, because the millennial, amillennial, ah means no or zero. You know, it's ah, atheist is no God. Amillennial, some people think, well, no millennium, right? Well, no, that's not what amillennials believe. Uh, amillennial believes that we are in the millennium now. That the millennium is the church age. Uh, that is the, this time period that we live in now. Uh, a better name for it that most amillennialists like are inaugurated millennium or a realized millennium. Those are preferred words by amillennialists. That the millennium is happening right now and that Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven right now. That it's not going to be an earthly throne that He reigns over. He, he reigns in heaven right now from His heavenly throne. And He's ruling and reigning over this earth for a thousand-year period. We'll get to that number in a minute, that being one of the biggest problems of the amillennial is that we are well past 1,000 years. So the idea is that at the end of the church age, Jesus will return to judge His enemies, and at that point, He will usher in the kingdom of God. 
Now, the way I interpreted Revelation necessarily led me to this position, uh, necessarily led me to be an amillennialist because I, I, I wanted to approach Revelation from a, pre, from a fresh perspective and it, it led me, just the symbolic nature of the Old Testament, uh, it just kind of naturally drew me into that. Now, I want to say I hold on to this loosely as an amillennial, uh, that it's not a closed-handed issue for me and I, I have, I've I'm probably been an amillennial now for about six months and uh, next year I might be a premillennial. I don't know. Uh, but my study of this has led me to this being the most accurate, uh, this most accurate interpretation. Uh, guys who would agree with me here, uh, this list here is guys like Augustine, Origen, and in early church, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.I. Packer, A.W. Pink, uh, G.C. Burkauer, E.Y. Mullins, Herschel Hobbs, Anthony Hokima, David Platt, Sam Storms, R.C. Sproul, Mark Dever. Is that, can you confirm or deny that? Okay. Lehman. He's pre-mill? Okay. Didn't convince him. Wow. Wow. All right. See, that's how it goes. Ben Merkel, Kevin DeYoung, Vody Bauckham, a lot of guys who, who would be in that camp as well. And I give you all those names to show you that all those are good, faithful godly brothers who disagree. And this is something that you and I can disagree on and still be united behind the common mission. Now, here's some objections to this. How it's clearly been more than a thousand years. If you're an amillennial, how can you believe that we're in 2015? I mean, what in the year? Gosh, 2018. (laughs) (laughs) That's awful. I'm not good at math. If we're in 2018, then clearly more than a thousand years. So that's the next question. How long is the millennium? Which you would say, well, that's an easy question. The Bible clearly says thousand years. And J.D., do you not believe the Bible? Do you not believe the Bible to be literal? Well, again, I'm going to go back and say, uh, like most every number in Revelation, this is not a literal number, but a theological number. Uh, it's, you, you look at the consistently symbolic nature of Revelation. Think of all the different things that are not to be meant taken literally. Stars, lamps. Uh, seals, trumpets, bowls, horsemen, a prostitute, a beast, a second beast, a dragon, a pregnant woman, a bride, a groom, John eating a scroll, seven heads, ten horns, fire coming out of the two witnesses, all these different things clearly not meant to be taken as literal but symbolic. And then you get to the fact that they're, the same thing is true when you start to look at the numbers in Revelation, that the 1200, all these numbers represent the church age. The number four is symbolic of all the people of the world. The number six is a number representing incompleteness. Seven representing completeness or wholeness or fullness. Ten uh, indicates something extreme but limited to. Ten is usually represented and associated with Satan. Twelve is a number that constantly represents God's people. The 144,000 being a, a, a derivative of that. God's people times a thousand squared is 144,000. That's the, uh, a picture of God's people. And I'm going to argue that a thousand is another one of those numbers that represents a great amount or a long period of time. Uh, that, that a thousand years is not literally a thousand years. It can, but it doesn't have to. Uh, some would argue that no, it's got to be a thousand years because it says a thousand years. Um, but let me give you a couple of examples where the Bible says a thousand years, but it's not a thousand years. Psalm 5010. 
For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean that God owns exactly 1,000 hills? No, of course, we would never believe that. No, it's, it's a way of God saying God owns all the cattle. He owns every hill, every cattle. Uh, it's symbolic of a very large quantity. It's not meant to be taken literally as a thousand hills. It's not like somebody else owns, owns the thousand and first hills. Uh, he'll, he owns all the others. Second Peter 3.8 says, But do not be, overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, no one takes that as literal, do they? No one looks at that and says, one day equals a thousand years, like that's an exact measurement. No, that's, that's a passage speaking about God's eternality and God's patience. And so I'm going to fall in the camp that says Revelation uses a thousand years to symbolize a very long time between Jesus' first and second coming, where the kingdom is advancing on earth and where the earth uh, through the church and Jesus rules and reigns from heaven. Okay? Any questions? Yep. It's a good question. I hadn't thought about that one. I don't know. I'm thinking about that and get back to you. Harder to find post. Scarcity, yeah, scarcity names on, on post. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the few eschatological positions that uh, I think are probably dangerous. I think it's dangerous, and, and I try to persuade people away from it. If somebody says I'm a you know leaky dispensationalist, you know pre mill, or I'm, I'm you know ah mill, you know take it or leave it sort of thing. But post millennialism has almost in every instance been connected to some form of Christian utopianism. Mm-hmm. It counteracts with so much of Scripture. Yep. Definitely. So, like, I feel like when you present that, we can say, yeah, here are three positions, but they're not all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are two that are okay to hold. Yeah. Uh, and you can waver back and forth. Yeah. The, the postmillennial position is, is rare and, yeah, I would agree, dangerous. It's kind of like what you said about preterism. Like, I don't know, these are mm-hmm. really. So another problem of, of, with this text is how will Christians reign with Christ? And I may be going too deep into this. Um, are we doing on time? Yeah, i got time. I'll go real quick. So the verses 4 and 5 here, they speak of a first resurrection where Christians will reign with Christ. And that means if you're, if you're a pre-mill, you've got to believe in two different resurrections, which is a problem for pre-millennialists. I uh, won't get into that. But what does that mean? Uh, if there's a first resurrection, there's a second resurrection, well, what are they? Well, the pre-mill, you're going to believe that there's one resurrection at the beginning of the millennium where believers who have already died reign with Christ. Uh, it's literally reigning for a thousand years on a throne here in Jerusalem. Another resurrection then at the end of the millennium where unbelievers are raised and sent off into judgment. Uh, if you're Amil, you're going to believe these two resurrections here. The first resurrection mentioned is to mean that when a believer dies, they immediately go to heaven. That's their resurrection, that they become alive in, in Christ. They're in His presence. Where they're fully alive, they're in a new resurrected body, and they reign with Christ in heaven. 
then at the end of the millennium or the end of the church age, there's a second resurrection of the dead where they will be judged by the Father as He sits on a great white throne. Okay, so now as, my, as I studied both of those positions in this, there are some difficulties to navigate in both positions. Neither have a solid airtight argument, but the common belief that whichever camp you land on is that followers of Christ have a part to play in the kingdom of God during coming, during the millennial reign of Christ. Whether you're pre-mill or a-mill, the church has a very pivotal role to play in advancing His kingdom. So not only is Christ reigning during the millennium, uh, the text also says that Satan is bound during the millennium. How is he bound for a thousand years? Uh, the pre-mill will say that at Jesus' coming, he binds Satan from any activity in the world for a thousand years. And for a thousand years, Jesus is on earth. Satan is then released at the end of that thousand years. Then after that, he's sent off to hell for all eternity. The amill sees that as different. The amillennial sees this binding of Satan as happening right now. So there's another problem with the amill position. How can you say Satan is bound during the church age? Satan is very clearly at work during the church age. And the Amel would not deny that. Um, the, the Amel will ask the question, what does it mean that Satan is bound? Does being bound mean completely restricted? Well, I would say no. And we get that because that Greek word used here in Revelation was also used in Matthew 12, 28, when Jesus bound the strong man. And so Matthew 12, 28 tells us, gives us what this word in Revelation means. 1228, and I'll just summarize it for you. Jesus is accused of being demonic. They all say, Jesus, you're demonic. And Jesus basically says, how can I be of Satan when I have bound Satan? Meaning Jesus has authority over Satan. Jesus has limited Satan in what, in what he is allowed to do. It's not a complete binding it's a limited binding. It, God is limiting what Satan can do, like Job. God limited what Job. God limited what Satan could do to Job. He bound him. Um, you could think of it like this: that um, that Jesus has uh, uh, that, that Satan is Satan's greatest desire is the death of the church. Well, God's not going to let that happen. He will bind Satan from stopping the the gospel mission of the church. Uh, he'll let him do a lot of bad stuff in this world, but Satan is on a leash. He will only do what God will allow him to do. In that sense, Satan is bound. So we're told, verses 3 from 8, what he's bound from. He's bound from deceiving the nations, meaning Satan can't do what he wants to do. He wants to, to gather the nations to defeat God's people. He wants to completely wipe out the church, but he's, fat, he's bound from doing that. Again, the text never says that Satan is completely bound in all his works. And this image at the end of the text that talks about being chained up and sealed in a pit, you're going to say, well, that's language of complete binding, is it not? No, it doesn't have to be. It, it's symbolic language used to show that Satan is restricted, restricted from deceiving the nations. It's, it's symbolic imagery that he can't do what he wants to do doesn't mean that Satan is completely restricted from doing anything. So his actions are restricted. He, he can cause a lot of damage, uh, but he cannot stop the spread of the gospel. And I would argue that Satan was ultimately bound at the cross. 
that Colossians 2.15 uh, says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has power over death, that is the devil. So there he's destroyed in Hebrews 2.14, yet he's still active. He's bound in Revelation, yet he's still active. So the binding of Satan has already happened. Jesus doesn't need to bind Satan again. I don't think he needs to bind him at the end of the age. He already bound him at the cross. At the cross. All right, so now we get to chapters 21 and 22. We'll wrap things up with this, the new heaven and the new earth. Beautiful picture. This is a lot more enjoyable uh, in the end of the, 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 the book here. The new earth is described kind of confusingly in chapter 21 as a clash of different images, a bride, a city, a temple, and a garden. So it's described in, in a, as a bride, as heaven and earth becoming one. Again, some people take this to be literally uh, that, that, uh, that um, heaven and earth is going to be seen like crashing into one another. Uh, but the picture is here a union which completely removes sin and death and mourning and pain and tears and describes all of that being, being removed from this earth as heaven and earth become one. Uh, it's described as a city in the next few verses. It, it lays out the measurements of the New Jerusalem. And here we see a giant cube-shaped city that if you read this literally would be a city that would stretch, if you put it on North America, would stretch from the East Coast to the West Coast and stand uh, like thousands and thousands and thousands of feet into the air, like sticking out into the clouds. Uh, like I have a picture of what it would look like on a globe, and it would just jut out of the, of the globe. If you read that to be literal, it would be such a huge city. So if you read it literally, you've got to necessarily believe there's going to be a giant cube-shaped city that will reach well into the atmosphere uh, if, it's, if it's literal. If it's symbolic, which is I believe it is, this is imagery of God's presence with His people. It's the exact dimensions of the Holy of Holies, of the temple, just on a much grander scale, a much larger scale. So I believe that is an image of God finally being with His people, using that image of the city and the temple, the 12 gates representing access uh, that God's people will have into His presence. The garden in, verse 20, 12, in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, describes what we're going to do on the new earth. Uh, that we are going to, it tells us we're going to do two things on the new earth. We're going to worship and we're going to work. We're going to worship we're worship unimpeded by sin. It will be total enjoyment as to who God is as we amplify His character. And we will work, but it will be work like it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, there was no toil in their work. The effects of the fall had not happened yet. And so Adam's work was enjoyment. It was full of joy. It was no more toil. Uh, it was filling work. It wasn't frustrating. It wasn't thorns and thistles. It was joy and fulfillment. Uh, Russell Moore says, The eternal state is hardly inactivity for the redeemed, but instead work, work that is joyously freed from the frustration of a cursed earth. The new earth is not simply a restoration of Eden, but a glorious civilization with a city, the glory of the nations redeemed and brought into it. One can expect the new earth would be abuzz with culture, music, painting, literature, architecture, commerce, agriculture, and everything that expresses the creativity of human beings as the image of God. So imagine that. We're not going to be floating on clouds uh, with, 
you know, harps when a baby diaper. That's not heaven. That's hell. We wouldn't do that. Uh, it's going to be a new earth. It's going to be a new earth where we enjoy everything that we enjoy now and probably more so without the effects of sin. I love what Randy Alcorn says in his book, Heaven. If you want a great book on heaven, read that one. Randy Alcorn says, I want to be a part of the group that explores the vast reaches of new cosmos. When my fellow explorers and I return home to earth, the capital planet, and enter the gates of the capital city, we'll gather for food and drinks and catch up on our stories. I'll listen to your stories. Maybe you'll listen to mine. Perhaps I'll write of the great planets of star systems far away. I'll tell how, many, how my explorations deepened my love for Jesus. And you'll play or sing for me the music of praise you composed while I was gone. I'll marvel at its beauty, and I'll see Jesus in it and in you. Maybe I'll write a book about the Omega Galaxy. You'll write, while you write one of, uh, well, you'll write one about the music of the heart. We'll exchange manuscripts, stimulate new insights, and draw each other closer to God. You know, well, you may have a change of profession in heaven. You're, you're going to have a job in heaven. I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, you're going to have some work to do, something that will enjoy, that will glorify God, something that will fill you with completeness. Uh, doctors and nurses, you're probably going to have to find something else to do since there'll be no more sickness. Uh, Sean, you and I, we're going to have to find something else to do. Uh, there's no need to preach anymore. We just say, Jesus is right there. Go talk to him. You know, math. <laughs> Heaven is not a place where we have nothing to do but float on clouds. Heaven is a new earth and a new where we have everything to do. A God to worship, a kingdom to rule, a universe to explore, work to accomplish, and friends to enjoy. And it's this vision that I want to encourage you, motivates us to live on mission in this world. Uh, the reason this, the, that I believe the Bible ends with this is motivation for His people to endure all this and to see our coming reward. That's what He did with the seven churches. He pointed their reward to this final chapter. And so a lot of people say, well, if you're too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Uh, but I would say that unless you are heavenly minded, you are of no earthly good. C.S. Lewis says it like this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set afoot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. So I would want to challenge you guys to let your longing for the new earth be the fuel for your obedience on the old earth. And then chapter 22 ends with a call to action, just very briefly. Since Revelation is true, chapter 22 encourages us to do these things, these seven things, to obey the Word of God, to be true to the worship of God, to proclaim the truth of God, to receive the righteousness of God, to respond to the invitation of God, to heed the warning of God, and to pray for the coming of God. To do those seven things. That's the final call for us as Christians. All right. Questions? Comments? It's a lot. Sure, yeah. 
That's why we recorded it, so you can. All right. Questions, comments? Anything else? Appreciate you guys hanging in there. I, I, I just I love teaching the Bible, and I love uh, I, I, I enjoyed Revelation a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, it makes it just made a lot more sense to me after I got done at it, and, I, and that's that's why I'm glad um, Sean gave you guys the opportunity to see it just in one sitting. And if you kind of get this image in your mind of these three divine judgments, and it just makes more sense, uh, and you'll start seeing it in places popping up in the uh, rest of the Bible as well. Right. Yeah? You, are you opening a can? Yep. Believers. Yeah, unbelievers. The bowls, uh, it's, it's, this, it's the same as this. Yeah, it's, they're, they're parallel. So yeah, they're like unbelievers. Yep, they're they're going to echo the Exodus plagues again. All right. We're in the Q&A portion, so if you got anything else. Thank you. A good, a good way to illustrate this, and, and uh, uh, I almost included this in our time, but I knew I wouldn't have the time to do it. Uh, the Bible Project, have you ever heard of that website? They do a really good illustration that looks a little less second grade than this. Uh, really well drawn, and do, they, do, they cover Revelation in about 20 minutes and just kind of paint this picture. So go to the Bible Project and watch that video. It's on YouTube or their website. Mm-hmm. And it'll be a guy explaining. It'll draw things as they go, and it's similar to this. And they, 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 they do it from this perspective as well. But they, they do it kind of like I did. They give, okay, it might mean this, but it also might mean that. And they, they kind of take a broad view. It's really, really helpful. Yep. The Bible Project. Yep. And just search Revelation when you get there. Or put that in YouTube, and it'll show up. Yes. Yeah, it's from the same people that put that out. Well, I didn't have a solidified opinion to start with, but it did solidify my, my thoughts. Like, I'm confident now, not to argue against somebody, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident where I stand on it now. And I'm confident with... Uh, oh, and did, I, did you look on the back page of your notes? There's recommended reading lists. Uh, those are things that helped me along the way, um, just in, in, in general categories. Um, but, yeah, it... it it definitely did solidify my, some of my stances. Uh, this is a really good big picture, 10,000 foot view of the book. Mm-hmm. The, the practical purpose, and I think you touched on it a little bit, um, is for right? Yeah. Did you emphasize that more in your preaching? To the yeah. Book? Yes. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, every, we, I did this in, gosh, probably 23 sermons. 
maybe 20 sermons. And so every, every, the, the recurring theme was I'd always open my sermons with what the purpose of Revelation is, to not get lost in the weeds of trying to figure out what, what, what means what, uh, but simply in, enduring a broken, fallen world, knowing that Jesus is, is advancing it towards a common goal. That's fine. No, I didn't have anybody leave the church. We actually gained members as I preached it. That, that was uh, interesting, uh, shocking to me. I thought I was going to lose them. Uh, I, had, I had three responses. One was from people outside of the church, and this was really just like two or three people from one family who saw online that we were doing this and never showed up, never probably listened to an entire sermon, but just kind of got a you know, rumor snapshot, you know, he said something about the rapture or something. And so I heard from another church member they they had said some bad things about our church because I didn't hold to a pre-meal position. And uh but within our church I got I've never seen Revelation explained that way. It total makes total sense to me. Like I I'm on board with you. I think that's right. And then the I probably had two people didn't say anything negative. But I could tell they didn't totally buy it. It was more like, that's a really interesting way to look at it. It was that. It was, it was very friendly. It was very outgoing. And, and I told them up front. I said, you know, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even that bad. It was just, it was a, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a neat perspective. And that was it, you know. So. Did you get a chance to do anything like this for them? No. having the notes yeah they might I don't know if it's that versus I mean I, I was every every week I was examining every text and every word so I don't know which which is harder but but you people miss Sundays you know that that way how do you how do you paint that picture for people preaching week by week you know I have a uh, I had a graphic I had a recurring graphic that I would put up and just uh, it was like it was very cheesy uh, like clip art stuff that I got off YouTube images or Google images and I'd put it up and, and I'd just explain this as I go and just add to it every week because that, that a lot of people are, are visual learners and so that helped our, a lot of our people and this helps me as well That's the Bible project stuff really helped me as well uh, they, they did actually I have it right here they have this poster that's the entire book of Revelation in one image and I had that on, as my my screen uh, screensaver on the backdrop of my computer uh, throughout the sermon series. So I just have this in front of me the whole time. And it just goes, there's the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and all these different segments that are going on here. So that's a free downloadable image you can use too. No. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 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 Say again. Is there anything that 
specifically, yeah, not specifically, but just in general, the the encourage encouragement to endure, like like the like these four horsemen right here, like you know, would encourage Smyrna. You know, they're going through persecution, so, so they're going through they're they're dying for their faith. So this right here would would speak to it in a general sense, I think. But none of the, after after chapter three, none of those seven. Uh, uh, ch- uh, churches are ever mentioned specifically by name. All right. There's nothing else. I guess we're done. Thank you, guys. Let me close with some prayer and, and also tell them a little bit about about you and, and Point Valens. Actually, let's do a little interview. Okay. How do I know you? <laughs> uh, I, I met Sean uh, at Panera Bread. Uh, That's right. Yeah. What was I doing there? So, shockingly, shockingly not at Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, no, I was a, a, one of our elders and I were uh, about to, or no, I was training one of our future elders. That's what it was. Bubba. Yeah, Bubba. And, um, it wasn't a prank. That was his real name. That's his real name, too, and he does not look like a Bubba. Uh, Jason. He is a Jason, yeah. But, 